Matthew 1, 18-23 this evening. The story of Jesus' birth from Matthew's perspective, really from Joseph's angle. Um, and let's pray as we get into this God's Word. Uh, Father, we do thank you from, for uh, this word uh, from your servant Matthew recorded for us. We ask that we see Jesus more plainly in it. In his name we ask, amen. Let's stand again for the reading of God's word. Matthew 1, 18-23 Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, Abel's been with us for about a year, a little over a year, and as you know, those of you who have had babies or been around babies, they're um, mysterious little creatures. And I think I've told you before, I'd just take Abel and look at him and, who are you? And <laughs> as he gets older, you get to see more and more of who he is. But that's one of the big questions, right, for, for our kids is, who are they and what is their purpose in this world? Why has God put them here? And at Christmas time, that is one of the, uh, one of the biggest things we ask about Jesus. Who is this person and why did God put him here who is Jesus and why why did he come and of course we hear all kinds of answers to this um, but our passage really gives us two names and uh, for Jesus and it is they are Jesus Jesus Christ and Emmanuel um, there's a lot really in a name people wonder often why did we name Abel Abel I mean, like he, he was murdered, right? Why would you name your kid after somebody who's murdered? And truth be told, I actually just like the name Abel. And I like the nickname Abe. I, I tried to get Kelly to go with Abraham for Cohen and Abel, and it didn't, didn't take. But we went with Abe, Abel, and I can still call him Abe. Um, but there's more to it than that. If you look at, at Abel in the Bible, besides Genesis 4, you find out that he, he's mentioned other places and he's really viewed as a, a great man of faith. He, he's counted by Jesus himself as someone who was killed and his blood was that of innocence and righteousness. 
And he's, he's, uh, we see him in um, Hebrews chapter 11 as this, this man of faith, this person who lived according to faith. So I'm actually happy to have my son associated with a person who has been um, murdered. I would rather have my children be lowly in the world's eyes, to be persecuted, even to be martyred, than to be comfortable in the world and loved by the world, but despised by the Lord. And so to me, that's what Abel's name represents to me, is, is my hope for his purpose in this world, that he lives as a man with faith before God, no matter the circumstances. So there's a lot to a name in the name of Jesus and the name Emmanuel. And these, these two names in this passage give us a great insight into those questions. Who is this person and why is he here? Why did he come here? Whatever our answers to those questions, they have to be informed by those two names. Um, so let's get into Matthew chapter 1 a little bit, and we can get a better sense uh, as we celebrate his birth tomorrow, who Jesus is and why he came into the world and why he was given these names. He begins in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And we have to stop there already. We see the name Jesus Christ. And as you all know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Um, Christ is from the Greek word Christos, which means Messiah. And the, the book of Matthew is an apologetic work, really, to convince the Jews to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament. He began the book with a genealogy, which at the very beginning, uh, and I don't know if you remember this, but this was probably the, the third sermon I preached when I came over, but Matthew 1.1 1, 1, that said, Jesus was the son of David, son of Abraham, or son of Abraham, son of David. These are big check marks, check boxes. If you're going to be the Messiah, you have to be the son of Abraham. You have to be the son of David. So that genealogy demonstrates that. And now here in, in this verse, in verse 18, he flat out says, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Christ is his name. The one prophesied about, the one anticipated. And of course, we're familiar with messianic um, themes. They make for really good stories. And that, that's why they're popular in, in books and films. You know, there's always kind of this, this people who's oppressed or afflicted. And there's a dusty book hidden away in some catacomb or something. And most people don't believe anymore. But there's this group of crackpots who still do believe the old dusty words. Um, that's us, by the way. And then one day, someone appears and, and this person starts to check off all the boxes. They match the, the prophecies that are in that old dusty book. He has all the qualities contained in the prophecies. And I think these storylines are captivating because we can all sympathize with those people who are waiting in misery for salvation. Because God has written eternity into our hearts and we're all cast members in his story, which is not just a story or a myth, but it's, it's reality. It's our lives. And whether we know it or not, we need a Messiah. We need someone to save us. Matthew is not ashamed here to say he's here. He checks all the boxes. The Messiah is here. This is the story of the birth of Jesus the Christ, he says. 
Now, if we're familiar with the birth story of Jesus, it's probably the one in Luke that we're most uh, familiar with. You know, there's the census, and they go, and there's shepherds and, and angels, and there's wise men, and there's a manger. We're, we're very familiar with that one. And here in Matthew, we get a different perspective. It's the story from Joseph's angle. And really, I'm glad that, that this angle was written into the Bible because it's very unique. Joseph's story has to be one of the strangest of all the people involved in the birth of Christ. I mean, imagine you're engaged to be married and your betrothed says, well, I'm pregnant. I mean, <laughs> disappointing to say the least because you know it wasn't you. But, but then flip to Mary's perspective for a moment. What are you going to say? <laughs> well, it was the Holy Spirit did, that did it. It's not, it's not the most convincing story. <laughs> It's a very, really an awkward situation, and I'm glad Matthew helps us resolve it so we don't wonder about it. Um, Jewish marriage and Jewish engagement was different from ours, as you may imagine. Um, Two people would be engaged. Often it was an arranged uh, situation, and that engagement, it was legally binding, where today if you get engaged, you can break it off, and there's no legal consequences. It's just, I mean, you're basically like breaking up with your girlfriend. It's just over. But it was a legally binding relationship for them, engagement was. And you had to issue a certificate of divorce to terminate uh, that relationship. And even in verse 19, it calls Joseph Mary's husband already before they're married. It says, husband. This engagement would last about a year, and the the woman would remain in her home uh, untouched by the man during that time. And so this is the, the state of their relationship when this all happens, when she becomes pregnant um, by the Holy Spirit. And of course, Joseph is in a real pickle here. The Old Testament law said that upon uncovering the unfaithfulness of Mary, he was within his legal rights to take her to her parents' front door and have her stoned publicly. Of course, he didn't want to do this to Mary. But at the same time, he he couldn't be party to just covering up this apparent unfaithfulness, this apparent sin. That's what we see in verse 19. um, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I've always kind of read being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame is kind of parallel. Like he was just as like in kind. He was a kind man. But really they're in contrast that he is, is both a just man and he's unwilling to put her to shame publicly. Um, that word there is the Greek word ju- justice. It's not, it, I don't think anywhere means kindness or, or friendliness. It's he was a just man and he was unwilling to put her uh, to, to put her to open shame. And so he, his solution makes sense. He, he resolved to divorce her quietly. He decided to put it away quietly. He would have to issue a certificate of divorce, but he wouldn't have her stoned on her parents' doorstep. And we, like Joseph, often formulate rational plans that make sense to us from what we're able to see, but we can't see everything. And so God ruins our plans at the expense of his, because his is always better. Um, Joseph had what seemed to be a rational plan here. But God stepped in, and while he was in the midst, it says of him contemplating these things, the angel of the Lord came and communicated to Joseph that this baby Mary was carrying was no ordinary baby. And Joseph's calling would not be just an ordinary carpenter's calling. In verse 20 and 21, 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph, it says, did what he was commanded. He, he took Mary as his wife, and when the baby was born, he did name him Jesus. But what a bizarre position this otherwise seemingly very ordinary man was called to occupy in redemptive history, to be kind of the stepfather to the Son of God. Of course, this story is not really about Joseph, as all Bible stories, it's about Jesus. This is about Jesus who would be born, and the things that he told Joseph are foundational in forming our understanding about who Jesus is and why he came. We have to understand that the Messiah had to be no ordinary human being. He had to be a very special human being. God, I... God is a bit like Joseph, really, in this story. He, he's he's not only dealing with people who have appeared to sin, though. He, he is appearing with people who have actually sinned, who are actually sinners. But God, kind of like Joseph, is he's just. He's not going to just let it go. He can't just ignore what we've done. But being kind and merciful and gracious, he has resolved to save a people for himself. And our history as the human race began with this man and woman, Adam and Eve. And they were in fellowship with God. It says in Genesis that, that he would walk in the garden with them. They were in actual fellowship with God. But God, of course, told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they did, they would experience death and its manifestations. And physical death, spiritual death, they would die. Of course, we've all heard the line that there are two certainties in this world, uh, death and taxes. But if we stop to think about it, why is death a certainty? It's because they ate the fruit. Our parents ate the fruit. For the wages of sin is death. And so we all sin and so we all die. We all sin because it's our nature to sin, because we're fallen descendants of Adam by nature, born sinners. Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the Messiah had to be a man, of course, to represent mankind. But he could be no mere man because men born of Adam cannot atone for sins because they have their own sins. He would not he, he would need salvation. He couldn't be our savior. So Jesus isn't an ordinary man. He's truly man, but he's also God in the flesh, born of the Holy Spirit. Verse twenty, do not take do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We get a little more clarity on this in Luke, Luke chapter 1, um, 30, uh, 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the, chi- the child to be born will be called the Holy Son of God. 
So again, this baby whom uh, the angel is telling Joseph about is no ordinary baby. He's born of a woman. He's a true human being, possessing all the qualities of humanity, a body and a soul, except for sin. He's like us in every respect except for sin. So he can represent us, a man representing men before God. At the same time, he's also truly God. He is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. He's the God-man. And that's just what we need as a Messiah, the God-man. In this Messiah, we find the grace of God. The angel speaking to Joseph in verse 21, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So there's that name, Jesus, again. Remember the two names, Jesus and Emmanuel. It's such an important name. Um, Jesus is the English rendering of the Greek, Jesus, um, and from the Hebrew name, Joshua, Yeshua. Uh, It literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves, which makes this an explicit reference to the deity of Christ because his name means Yahweh saves, and it says he will save his people from their sins. So if we hear nothing else tonight, don't hear my words, but hear these words from this verse, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And there's two um, life-shattering and life-giving truths that we could take from this statement. And we know them not to be popular, but they're true because they're in God's Word. We know there's something wrong with the world. That much is obvious, that there needs to be salvation for the world. But even deeper down, if we're honest, we know that there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with me, and I need a Savior. And instead of clinging to Jesus, who is the promised one, who is the Messiah, to save us from our sins, we turn to all manner of kind of band-aid saviors as temporary fixes, temporary pleasures and comforts, insufficient Jesuses who leave us something left over for us to do. He does 90%, 99%, but we do 1%. We trust in ourselves completely. We believe, I can do it myself. I I can please God through my own good deeds. Or we believe that humanity is the solution to humanity's promise. In a sense, it is, but that human has a name. His name is Jesus. The second truth we should glean from this verse is that only God's people will be saved. I, I love Michael's quote from Sunday School this week. I don't know if, he, if it's original to him, but we live in a time when all you have to do to go to heaven is die. That's so a great line. In other words, and this is the language we hear at almost every funeral, no matter who they were or what they believed, we'll, we'll see them again someday. They're looking down on us. God's word is very clear. There is a group of people, and that group is not everybody that will be saved. It is His people. That's the name He gives them here in this text. His people. 
The obvious question is how one becomes a member of that people. Popular but my, my, uh, widely misunderstood verse tells us that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So the means by which we become one of the people of God is belief. Whoever believes. And the decidedly less popular verse that follows in verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And that's what's required, to believe in the name of the Son of God. Jesus preaches the gospel in Mark. Uh, and I think if we're going to believe anything, any gospel, it would be Jesus' gospel. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So those are two, two activities there. Repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance is not kind of, you know, you're, you're going up the trail and you kind of do the obligatory hello as Jesus passes you on the, going the other direction. Or it's not, you know, you see Jesus in the crowd and you give three cheers for Jesus and then you go about your business. Um, repentance is when you're walking one way and Jesus passes by going the other, you turn and you follow Him. That's repentance. And belief is resting in His work for you. We cannot do what needs to be done to make ourselves right with God. Instead, what the Bible says is that when we believe, we are counted righteous. We are reckoned righteous before God's judgment throne. I think sometimes we think of of Jesus almost like like a mother with a three-year-old. And I should know. I have one. Um, you know, they're sitting there mess, right before church, messy from breakfast, um, you know, egg yolk on the face, messed up hair, food on the church clothes, and mom does that, that dreaded thumb lick to get the crud off the face and wipes as much food off as possible with the napkins, tries to reorder her hair. She does her best to clean up the child and make her presentable for church. As Jesus doing the best he can to make us presentable. What Jesus does when we believe in him is he takes off his perfectly clean robe and he gives it to us. So that when we stand before the Father, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus instead of our filth. I think that's what it means to rest in the works of Jesus. This may sound crude, but it's the best thing I could think of, is we need to stop polishing a turd, and we need to take that glimmering cup of God's wrath in our hands, look inside, and rejoice that it's empty. Because Jesus drank it dry. That, that's faith. That's resting in Jesus. Resting in what He has done. And it's then and only then that we will be counted among God's people and will be saved.
And the path that Jesus is leading us on is the only path that leads to God. Uh, every religion in the world has its people climbing a ladder rung by rung to try to get to God, trying to get a little bit closer. And even people who aren't sure about the existence of God seem to be climbing a ladder to some kind of utopia or some vision of the divine. And no, no major worldview that I know of says, well, this is it. We've arrived. Uh, maybe the maybe there's some kind of suicidal club that that would hold to that philosophy. But there's a sense of absence in us all. We're all missing something, and that something is God walking with us in the garden. Because of our sin, we're alienated from our Creator. Colossians says we're alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We've lost fellowship with Him. And we're all kind of doing our best to crawl our way back. The problem is that, first of all, He's so holy and perfect, and we've fallen into such a deep pit that we'll never get there. By our best efforts, usually we'll find out we've actually been laboring in the wrong direction anyway. Jesus proves to be such a wonderful Savior because rather than making us uh, climb to Him, He came down to us. When we were His enemies, He came to bring salvation. Philippians 2, so wonderful. Though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that is why the second name in this passage is attributed to Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Through Jesus, God is with us in, in such a great variety of ways. For one, He entered into our human history. Also, He's a man like us in all respects except for sin. Even now, He's been raised up to the Father's right hand and He is with us and for us. It's one of the most astounding things to, to me that a man who shares some bit of genetic material with me is interceding for me at the Father's right hand. That really is God with us. And through Jesus, peace with God has been restored for those who believe. We who were once aliens, who were hostile in mind, who were without God in the world, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who lived in rebellion have found ourselves placed in a wonderful kingdom with a mighty and benevolent king, King Jesus. God is with us. He, He is our God and we are His people. Every one of us who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus. Each one of us truly has Emmanuel and God with us. Praise God.